Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Amanda Montel, who is a writer and a linguist and author of the book, Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language. Thank you so much for being with us, Amanda. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm often told that uh, I, I come with a wealth of information that people's moms never told them. So I thought this would be a <laughs> Perfect fit. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, in your book, you do talk to moms about their outdated language. So that's kind of like even better. You tell moms what they don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's true. I um I found that moms really enjoy word slut. I think the phrase word slut is, you know, it's scandalous, but it's not too scandalous for a mom, you know? It's a juxtaposition <laughs> of a sort of like nerdy word, which is word. And then an edgy word, which is slut, but you put them together and it's sort of the the cronut of a of an expletive that moms seem to be okay with, which is good because really this is a book about feminist sociolinguistics that um people of of all of all genders and all ages, especially those in their middle age, probably need. So <laughs> uh, first of all, I'm gonna give you a point for just just saying cronut in any kind of analogy. So good job. <laughs> oh well, yes. anyone anyone who knows me knows that I am a portmanteau slut, portmanteau, <laughs> portmanteau being a, a hybrid of, of two different words to create a new one, like brunch, frenemy, hangry, yeah. affluenza, yeah. mansplain. There are a great many portmanteaus that the feminist movement has come up with in order to name previously unspoken experiences like mansplain, herstory, fratriarchy is a fun one. Um, so oh, that's yes. a new one for me. Oh yeah, fratriarchy is what um, some social scientists have used to describe the setup of our contemporary culture, which is run less by the fathers and more by networks of the brothers. So you know, uh, uh, 
an example would be, you know, Donald Trump and his bus bros and that Access right. Hollywood recording would be a perfect example of fratriarchy, you know, bros engaging in locker room banter in order to oppress women. We're really getting into this quickly. All yeah. I said all I said was cronut and here we are. <laughs> Look. That's that how we do our right conversations. Crowd. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, well, that is all to say that I love a portmanteau even more than a pun. <laughs> oh, ooh, ooh, I Jenny, you really have a battle now. She she loves she's a queen of puns. Loves them. Yes. I do I'm love also a pun. like I'm a I'm a big language nerd. Listeners of the show know. So I'm very, very excited to have this conversation. <laughs> um love the title and congrats on writing a book. Yes. I know that's no easy thing. So Oh, that's congrats for that. <laughs> that's that's very kind of you. Yeah, that was that was the dream all along, you know, and um, the fact that I got to marry my two loves, that being linguistics, the science of language, and creative writing, the art of it, um, that was just, you know, that was the cherry on top. Because my dream had always been to write nonfiction, um, and I, I never could have predicted that this sort of um, useless, nerdy undergraduate degree that I got would, would help me in any sort of fruitful way. Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled that I was able to, to write about this stuff that I love so much and talk about in my everyday life and, and bring it to a general audience um, of people who might not even know what linguistics is. So that's been awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was wonderful to read. Super fun. Mm-hmm. Very entertaining. Definitely mm-hmm. listeners, check it out. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, the inspiration behind this more than just getting to marry the things that you <laughs> yeah. love. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up a total language nerd, hardcore. I was obsessed with what I would later learn was a field called sociolinguistics, um, which is where language and sociology and culture intersect. You know, I was always so fascinated by the way that um, people spoke and how it could inform our perceptions of them and the way that I spoke and the way that it informed other people's perceptions of me, you know, why was it that um, when I as sort of a, a small woman would would curse or maybe even use um, $10 words, um, people would be sort of surprised or scandalized, whereas when my you know, male colleagues would do so, they they didn't get the same reaction. And, and then you know, I was always just obsessed with the thesaurus. Like, I just loved big old words, and I loved, you know, the the swoosh and thwack of different, you know, sounds. And I would later learn that that stuff was called phonetics and phonology. Um, but I, I, yeah, I was obsessed with foreign languages and dialects. And again, how um, speaking a foreign language or or having a certain accent or dialect feature could change the way that a person saw you. So then when I got to college and signed up for my first Linguistics 101 class, having no idea what the field was, and learned there was this whole, you know, small but mighty um, group of people studying formally um, these subjects, I I was so smitten. And the, the gender and language classes that I took really inspired me and like lit a fire um, more than anything else because they they highlighted these hidden gender biases and stereotypes um, that we all grow up using in our everyday language. Um, and 
they're 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 all over the way that we speak, not only in English but in other languages too, like languages with grammatical gender, um, where gender is literally built into the grammatical system. Um, we don't have that in English, um, other than you know our third singular pronouns, he and she, which you know there's a reason why our our gendered third singular pronouns have become such a topic of contention in in our language because they are really the the only um, unit of grammar that we have in English that is gendered. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the little category of language that's become um, sort of politicized. But yeah, I was I was so fascinated um, and sort of horrified, but also inspired um, to learn about all the ways that gender and gender stereotypes are lurking beneath the surface of our language. Everything from, you know, how we use gendered insults and how there's such a such a more robust wealth of, of insults for women or referencing femininity in English than there are for men to the, the ways that we criticize and perceive women's voices, um, whether it's, you know, using a, a certain feature like uptalk, um, where you end a declarative sentence in the upward intonation of a question, or vocal fry, which is a vocal quality where your larynx are very relaxed that sounds like this. I mean, I'm sure as uh, as podcast hosts, you're no stranger to criticisms of your voices. <laughs> um, and it was really cool to learn about how so many judgments, not only of women's speech, but of the speech of so many marginalized communities, um, have so little to do with the speech itself at the end of the day, and very much to do with our preconceived notions of those speakers. Um, and just, you know, the the idea of, of male defaultness in our, in our culture and in our language and how the way that men, um, specifically, you know, middle-aged, white, straight, cisgender men, the way that they use language is um, what we default consider prestigious and normal in our culture, um, even though uh, linguists have found time and time again that young women and communities of color are our language's linguistic innovators um, because these are the groups that use language as a form of power in a culture that doesn't give them a lot of other ways to do that. Um, the other example of male defaultness in speech that I that I like to give because it's sort of like it tends to shock people as it shocked me when I first thought about it was um, just the way that we describe sex like as penetration, you know, that that word places you know, penises as the protagonists and the narrators of sex, you know, the opposite might be something like envelopment or enclosure, or if you want to approach it from a slang angle, something like sheathing. And I was just like, that is wild how how word choice um, with regard to gender and so many other identities is something that we don't even think about because we grow up um, using language so organically. Um, and so you know, the, the opportunity to bring um, some of these empirical studies that are kind of inaccessible and only really read by linguistic students um, to a general audience was really exciting to me. Um, but yeah, I guess you asked me to talk about myself and then I just continued talking about <laughs> linguistics. <laughs> but, um, That's great. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer and I always dreamt of being a writer. Um, and I, uh, I'm writing my second book now, which is about the language of cults from Scientology to SoulCycle. 
um, and uh, how the how these groups, you know, the wide spectrum of groups that the word cult can be applied to in contemporary culture, from those as notorious and destructive as Jonestown to those as um, you know seemingly innocuous and and constructive as uh, something like Peloton. Um, how these groups use language to do things that uh, a cult or a cult following would need to do, like create community and solidarity, instill ideology, create an us versus them mentality, etc. So I guess the the general theme with me is that I'm I'm really interested in in language and culture. And um, so that's that's what I'm doing. But I want to write about all kinds of things over the course of my career. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you should. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that was a great answer, and there's so much to unpack there, and I think we will. But I want to start with a, a simple, super easy question. Yeah. Can you give us a brief rundown on the history of the English language, and perhaps particularly when it comes to this question of, is it, sexist because you talk right. about that a little bit in the book. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, the English language has such a a, a storied past. Um as as many languages do, but um you know, and this is the other fun thing about sociolinguistics is that you get to track how things like wars and epidemics actually to to you know, be topical about it, um <laughs> can inform how languages evolve. So, let me think of how I want to tell this story in a succinct manner. So basically, we can start back in the 5th century AD. This was long ago, folks. <laughs> um, the 5th century AD, that's when this trio of Germanic tribes um, from Scandinavia showed up in the British Isles unannounced. Um, and, you know, we don't know if it was peaceful or violent, but, you know, probably violent. And um, those tribes spoke this language called Inglisk. Um, I actually don't quite remember how to pronounce the name of the language that they spoke, but it sounded like Lord of the Rings language. Um, and so this lingo, along with some of the North Germanic languages spoken by Vikings, pushed Britain's Celtic languages to the outskirts of the country. Um, and so the, the product of all of these languages intermingling um, is what we call Old English, um, and it's totally incomprehensible today, but, you know, you might have come across some Old English um, if you took nerdy language courses in college like I did. Um, anyway, Old English was spoken until precisely the year 1066 AD, and that's when the Duke of Normandy, um, who was from France, this terrifying little man, came in, um, it came into England and murdered a bunch of people and brought with him an early form of French. Um, and so... That happened, and it was all very violent. But then what was even more violent, speaking of epidemics, was that the Black Death swooped in and killed off about a third of the population. Um, and so by the 14th century, um, English had become the dominant language of Britain again, not, not Old French. But at this point, English had been influenced so heavily by Old French um, that it gave us a new form, which was Middle English. And then a few centuries go by, and a bunch of stuff happens, like the Great Vowel Shift. Um, and by the... 1500s, the traveled-enabled British have started mingling with, you know, a ton of different people around the world, and so globalization was starting to happen a little bit, the European Renaissance was starting to happen a little bit, and um, the printing press was invented, which was uh, really important for um, language standardization. 
So uh, all of this starts to happen. The first uh, Webster's Dictionary was printed. Actually, I don't know if it was Webster's. The first dictionary was printed. It had about <laughs> 2,500 words. The 1600s come along. Colonization of North America takes place. And then North American English um, starts to evolve, and that's influenced by French and Spanish and the West African slave trade. Um, and the Industrial Revolution happens, and then the internet happens, and um, a bunch of shit happens, and then we have contemporary American English. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great timeline. <laughs> yeah. I like it. <laughs> Sorry, that was kind of long-winded, but the history of English is so dramatic. I don't know how to succinctly describe it. <laughs> yes, yes, that was a very big question, and I appreciate right. you. <laughs> I think you did a really great job. Oh, of, yeah. Uh, getting oh, that together. <laughs> yeah, so going off of that, you kind of discuss um, how the English language isn't necessarily sexist. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So much as like the people in power have used it. Absolutely, correct? yeah. So there's nothing inherent about the vowels and consonants of English that would make it inherently sexist. Um, but, you know, as the story of the history of English shows, culture and human beings and how we interact with each other and how we colonize and how we standardize really has a huge effect on, on the way that language moves. And so you know, many of the characters in this story of the history of English are men, you know, the, the army dudes and the aristocracy and the merchants and laborers and the printers um, who, you know, invented the, the printing press um, and um, started printing standardized English grammar guides, um, the dictionary makers, the industry and technology folks, you know, because we live in a society where historically it hasn't been as easy for women and other marginalized folks to to do cool things from a high position of power, um, it's it's been hard for them to define the world from the top down. Um, but, you know, as it turns out, women do have a, a huge, huge, enormous impact on how language evolves from the bottom up, which is its own um, sort of even more important kind of power. Um, and that's what the rest of Wordslut is about, really. Right. Yeah. Um... So sort of relate, I know you talk about, and we've talked about this in um, an episode we did in the past of this sort of devolving of words. Mm. Like if you look at um, like master and mistress, for example. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in English, we have these two forms of semantic change called pejoration and amelioration. And pejoration describes a process of how words over time, where a word that starts out with a neutral or positive meaning eventually devolves to mean something negative. And amelioration is the opposite process. So, <laughs> Sadly, nearly every word the English language offers to describe a woman has at some point during its lifespan been colored some shade of obscene. Um, and there was this linguist named Muriel Schultz um, who wrote this 1975 paper called The Semantic Derogation of Woman. And in it, she 
describes this process and looks at so many of the words um, for which this process is true. Um, and, you know, it's no coincidence that she wrote this paper in 1975 because, you know, the, the 1970s with the second wave feminist movement, that's when we really saw the dawn of the study of feminist sociolinguistics. So it is relatively new um, and, you know, expanding all the time and becoming more intersectional all the time. And when, when young readers of the book who, who hold a, a complex intersection of identities come to me and they tell me, like, I want to write about linguistics now, it just, like, makes me so happy because we're really, um, we're missing a lot of voices in, in the world of feminist sociolinguistics. And there are a ton of people doing really important work um, in the field, but not enough of them. So that's another conversation. But yeah, I mean, we can compare certain minimal pairs um, of words, like you talked about master and mistress, you know, the, these terms come to English by way of old French, and, and initially both of them indicated a, a person in a position of authority, like male and female heads of household. Um, but, you know, mistress, uh, obviously, as we know, it devolved over time to mean, you know, a sexually promiscuous woman with whom a, a, a married man um, fornicates. And meanwhile, master um, continues to describe a man who's in charge of something like a, a, a household or an animal or a person who's conquered a difficult skill like a, like a chef or a karate master. Um, another example is buddy and sissy, um, which, uh, you know, used to mean they were just synonyms for brother and sister. But of course, buddy ameliorated to mean, you know, a comrade or a pal, you know, it has this friendly, cozy connotation, while sissy devolved to come to mean, you know, sort of a weak, overly effeminate man who, God forbid, reminds you of a woman. Um, sir and madam is another minimal pair, but yeah, you, you come across a lot of those, but it's really interesting because, you know, so many of the words that we think of as incredibly degrading towards women, like, oh God, and here's where I'm going to have to skirt around some of these curse <laughs> words. So slut actually started out as a, a fairly neutral term. Um, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was used to describe a sort of messy or untidy woman. And um, it was sometimes used to describe men as well. Um, Chaucer at a point describes a male character as sluttish, which <laughs> I find entertaining um, to describe, you know, <laughs> this character's slovenliness. Um, but what we find with slut and what we find with so many terms for women is that over time, they, they come to mean a, a sexual slur. That's where they end mm -hmm. up. And that really reflects the, the position of, of women in our culture. Um, you know, we, when we go to insult a woman, we can't help but reduce her to a, a sexual object, um, whether that's by way of calling her some type of animal or some type of edible treat, um, or just plain old, you know, calling her a, a prostitute, which in itself is a problematic word, um, as, you know, sex work is completely legitimate. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, that, that was a, a fascinating thing to discover. And then what was also cool was to to learn and share the information about reclamation um, because uh, a reclamation is sometimes, you know, a controversial subject too because, you know, not everybody is going to agree on which words deserve to be abolished rather than reclaimed. And, you know, something that we see in culture is that, um, you know, sometimes gendered insults will go 
out of style as soon as the underlying belief in them does. So it's one of the reasons why you never hear someone, you know, call a woman an old maid or a spinster in earnest, you know, really trying to to damage them or disparage them anymore because it's no longer completely reprehensible to be a woman who's over, you know, 35 and unmarried. Um, and so, you know, there were people, there were, you know, feminists who I respect who um, thought it was, you know, who would not have named their book Word Slut um, because they think that slut is one of those words that deserves to just go away entirely because it's problematic to have a special word for women's promiscuity at all. Um, and I agree with them there, but, you know, I, I might be slightly more of an optimist um, when I think about reclamation because I like to think, you know, if if we can only choose to use gendered insults in positive contexts, so word slut or talking about you know, sluttiness, even if it has to do with sex in in a positive way. Like, ugh, I had such a slutty night last night. It was amazing. But if we can only use bitch in contexts of like bad bitch, badass bitch, me and my bitches. Um, and by the way, we have uh, women in hip hop in 90s hip hop largely to thank for the reclamation of the word bitch. Um, you know, we can almost, they almost single-handedly um, were responsible for reclaiming that word. Um, if we can only use these terms in positive context, then as the next generation comes up hearing those contexts, then they will no longer think of a slut or a bitch in a negative light. Um, and, you know, if we can do that, and then when we go to insult people, because Lord knows I love to insult people, if when we <laughs> insult people, we can target their behavior rather than their gender, then we can be more inclusive, more specific, more incisive. We can be meaner, in fact, when we, when we criticize their behavior because we're actually addressing the thing about them that we don't like rather than just saying like, oh, you're a bitch, you're a slut, you're a C-U-N-T. Um, and the history of that word is also fascinating. And it, and it, again, did not start out as a negative thing. Um, but yeah, that's why, I, you know, I, the, naming the book Word Slut was sort of this, um, this statement of, of reclamation and, and my belief in, in using words only in, in positive contexts that have so long been used against us. Um, because, you know, a more equal world is also one where less offense is taken to language because there's, um, there's nothing disempowering about it. And language can really um, work to empower or disempower people in a, in a truly material way. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because I've, I've, I've shared this story before on the show, but yes, as podcasters, we do get a lot of criticism on our voices and what we say. And one of my favorites is back before I was even a voice, I was just a producer. Um, I got a comment that said, I know the producer of this show and she's a huge slut. And I think about that all the time. I'm like, did what? that guy actually know me? What? Who are you? Right. <laughs> out of nowhere. Like he went out of his way to insult someone. Insult the producer. Right. Yeah. Um, Wait, has anybody ever called Andrew a slut? <laughs> <laughs> There's that. Well, I do think it's interesting that, um, and, it, and it highlights some of that, that male defaultness again when we have words like manslut, um, mm -hmm. which highlight the, the notion that, you know, someone who's contemptuously promiscuous must be female um, if mm. we have to tack that masculine modifier onto it um, in order for that to apply to men. Um, 
And, you know, we see the same thing or similar thing with, with words like man bag, man bun, guy liner, you know, which, yeah. which serve to imply that objects often thought to be frivolous, like makeup and purses are inherently feminine. And I, in, a, in a former career, I was a beauty editor. So I can talk about the history of makeup and, and men and how it is not actually inherently feminine, but that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and how, you know, and my other sort of pet peeve, and we all have language pet peeves, but the the fun thing about being a linguist and some something that I try to communicate is that we're not interested in the way that people should talk. We're interested in the way that people do talk. And so, um, you know, correcting grammar, that's something that people sometimes ask me when they hear that, you know, I've studied linguistics. They're like, oh, are you always correcting people's grammar in your head? And I'm like, no, just the opposite. You know, I'm not a pedant. I'm not a grammarian. I'm, I'm interested in the precise opposite. You know, I want to know how people really do talk in their most natural state and what that says about their background and, and their experiences. And so I try to remain as uh, non-judgmental and as curious as possible about language. And I think that in general, that's a, that's a really good way to approach it. Um, but yeah, I do. That said, I do have my own little pet peeves. And uh, some of them are, are when, you know, when people say things like, you know, girl boss and CEO mm -hmm. and mompreneur, you know, they sort of like cutesify um, terms that are, are not inherently gendered, um, which highlight and perpetuate the notion that the words boss and entrepreneur and CEO are sort of tacitly coded male. Um, even when people call me a girl boss as a compliment, like I, I just cringe because I'm like, what? First of all, I'm not the boss of anyone. I literally have no employees, but <laughs> but also if you're going to call me that, please don't call me a girl boss because let's not let's not perpetuate and reflect these stereotypes, shall we? <laughs> right. And that's like a double whammy in itself cuz obviously a girl is a juvenile to begin with. Oh, exactly. So it's, it's a diminutive like yeah, not only are, does it have to be, hey, oh, you're something special because you're not male, so we have to say you're a female of sorts, but not only that, you're a child, so you're a girl. So it's exactly. like, uh, stop. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine calling some 60-year-old man a boy boss? It would be so silly. Just wouldn't make sense. I'm going to now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to now. I know. <laughs> Give it a try. It. <laughs> we have some more for you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. rant for a sec please pay apps are way too public what happened some rando hearted a payment from five months ago and i realized people can see my entire history who i'm paying like full names it's super weird yeah it's weird how are you paying your friends then apple cash it's all in messages you can literally send cash like a text and it stays between friends random people can't see it did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Because as we've discussed, the the media loves, 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 loves to critique female women voices. Um, how to stop local fry, how not to up talk, stop saying sorry, stop using emojis, stop using exclamation points in emails. That's right. Um, and largely it seems like what it's boiling down to is telling women and other marginalized communities to to fit into this, conform to this male-dominated workspace. So what are some ways that you have found or that you think that we can find our own voices and own our own voices in those spaces? Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, These spaces, I mean, culture in general wants women and, and folks of other marginalized identities who don't speak quote-unquote, standard English, which is, of course, the standardized English um, that was put in place by, you know, stuffy old white men. They, they, want, they want everyone else to accommodate to that standard because we all grow up thinking that that is proper English. Um, it's prescriptive grammar. Um, that's the grammar that your English teacher teaches you. Um, but really, there is nothing inherently better about it. And in fact, attempting to keep language from moving forward or changing is a futile effort because it is going to change and young women are you know going to be the ones to to change it um and that's what linguists have found time and time again that young people tend to you know be quicker on the uptake of linguistic change than older generations and young women tend to be about half a generation ahead of young men and so you know, really, when it comes to linguistic innovation, we should be celebrating that. And and that doesn't only have to do with, you know, innovations that young women make, but, you know, especially with with everything that's that's going on in our, our country right now, I, I can't not address how so often African-American English is mm-hmm. criticized as being improper English or poor grammar without acknowledging, and this is something that you learn in linguistics, and I'm so grateful for that, that it is such a complex and sophisticated systematic dialect um, that is a product of Black Americans' oppression, but also their innovation. Um, and Black Americans grow up learning from an extremely young age to code switch so that, you know, in, in certain communities, they're speaking one dialect, and then maybe in, in office spaces or, or white spaces, 
They're they're learning to speak another dialect. And that's a form of bilingualism that should be celebrated rather than condemned. But, you know, I remember growing up in Baltimore, you know, my English teachers in middle school and high school criticizing Black students' voices when they weren't in class, when they were in the hallway, um, and, you know, telling them not to use this verb tense or, or you know, that pronunciation. And um, that really perpetuates stereotypes in, in an extremely negative, profound way that, that does keep people um, from power and that does um, promote racism. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you're talking about owning your voice in some of these spaces, it is challenging because sometimes a person's most authentic voice will, you know, be a, a hindrance to them, even though there's nothing inherently wrong with their speech. In fact, their speech is probably more sophisticated and more inventive and more communicative than the speech of, you know, their bosses. And actually, linguists have an acronym for the least innovative um, population of English speakers. They're non-mobile older rural males and linguists call them norms, which I just think <laughs> is fantastic. Um, so, you know, when we're, when we're at work or, or certainly when you're, you know, running for political office or when you're, you know, vying for any sort of position of power, the expectation is for you to accommodate to the speech of norms. And, you know, in, in some workplaces, it's going to be more acceptable to push back against that, you know, say, oh, hey, I read in word slut that, uh, <laughs> that vocal fry and up talk and using like every other word. Um, these are actually signs of linguistic savvy. And I can point you to a number of empirical studies that disprove these problematic standards that you've always held. Um, but obviously, and not every workplace, uh, that, is that going to be appropriate? So sometimes what I like to tell people is that when you get criticisms from a boss or something like that, that you need to stop using vocal fry or so many filler words or exclamation points in your emails or, you know, whatever it is, um, you might have to briefly, you know, temporarily accommodate in order, you know, not to get fired, in order to keep your job. Um, but then you can go back to your desk or you can go home, not wasting any time second-guessing yourself. It's really, you know, it's almost a form of gaslighting when someone tells you that there's something wrong with your speech, even though mm -hmm. there's actually something wrong with their standards. Um, but you can go back to your desk or go home or log off Skype or Zoom or whatever service you're using, and you can at least not waste any time worrying that there is something inherently wrong about you, that your voice is you know, naturally inauthoritative and that you need to change. You know, we all know what we need to do in those spaces temporarily. We need to, you know, just talk like our bosses for the time being. But at least you will have the confident knowledge that your speech is there for a logical, powerful, provable reason. And so in, you know, a couple years, few years, when you become the boss, you can resist perpetuating those standards when you now have young women and other folks coming up under you. Um, because, you know, so many of the criticisms that I myself have received in the workplace of saying like too much or, 
you know, being too, quote unquote, opinionated or allowed or um, any of these other criticisms. So, so much of them have come from female bosses. And often their criticism is even harsher because they figured, you know, I had to do this. I had to fight tooth and nail to climb the corporate ladder. These are always white women, by the way. Um, you know, the Karens of the world. They, they, you know, they think I had to, I had to accommodate. I had to fight my way up the corporate ladder. So this is just par for the course and you need to do it too. And I'm going to hold you to an even stricter standard. Um, meanwhile, like these these speech qualities like like and vocal fry and, and so much of the slang that comes from African-American English that, you know, eventually within a few years ends up taking a seat at the table of everyday English. Um, th these are qualities that everybody ends up using um, in, a, in a number of years. It's just that there are these growing pains because when norms hear this language, they, you know, uh, subconsciously feel the grounds of linguistic change quaking beneath them, you know, and this is a sign that the that a new generation is rising up and coming into power and they don't like that, especially when those people are people of color or women or both. So, yeah, my, my advice is really just to not let it get you down, not let these criticisms get you down, not let them distract you. Remain open-minded about your speech and non-judgmental about your speech, but also non-judgmental of the speech of others who, who aren't like you. And then when you're the boss, make it an, an inclusive, empowering space for folks who aren't norms. <laughs> yeah, I did love reading in your book when you were talking specifically about when the fact that the Black community would coin these terms or um, language, like woke, had been oh, really yeah. taken over. It's now blown, obviously, all kinds of ways. Um, and it's kind of ignored once it becomes popular and becomes a term that is acknowledged that it was ever started and began with the Black community and trying to beg those people that are not Black to understand what is happening in whatever political or even just humanitarian types of ways that their rights were being taken away in any type of form. And I did like that you did talk about that a little bit. Can you talk a little more? And I know it wasn't too big of an excerpt, but you were talking about how it has originated there and how it kind of just how big of an influence it does have in everyday life. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, we have we have African-American folks and speakers of African-American English to thank for all of our treasured slang terms in English, you know, terms as new as woke and squad and fuckboy and as old as the use of bad to mean good and the phrase 24-7. I mean... I talked to this amazing linguist um, at the University of Texas at Austin named Sonia Lanehart, who studies uh, African-American English and women. Um, and she told me that the first time she ever heard a white male news anchor on the television use the phrase 24-7, she nearly spit out her drink because that <laughs> derived from African-American English. And, you know, not only that, but so many of today's most beloved slang terms that we see used on social media all the time, like throwing shade and read and work and yas um, and iconic. These are terms that are so often attributed to, you know, broad city or the internet, but they derive from ballroom culture, which was a community of extremely marginalized Black and Latinx you know, trans and gay drag performers um, whose heyday was in 1980s Ballroom New York. And we so often fail to recognize, and, you know, it's not, you know, explicitly everyone's fault. It's just, it's our culture. You know, we don't want to give credit where credit is due. 
And we don't want to acknowledge um, the originators of some of this language. And by the way, like sort of like what you were saying, these folks don't create slang because they think it'll be trendy and catchy and they want to create a hashtag and they want to become Instagram famous. They create this language because it's a matter of solidarity and survival. You know, when when ballroom performers were using some of that language in the 80s, it was so they could identify who was safe to trust, who was a part of their their group um, so that they could avoid persecution, so that they could avoid violence. Um, And that is so much of why so many queer communities and communities of color invent with language um, because they're, you know, they're at the risk of of really, you know, real life violence. Um, And that's such an important thing to recognize. And so it's like, it's like everything else, you know, we're seeing so much communication right now about how, you know, we wish that America loved black people as much as they as we love black culture, and that right. has to do with music and um, and fashion, and very much has to do with language. And so, you know, the least we can do if we're going to use some of the products of of these communities is to support them at every turn. And I I talked a lot with Sonia Lanehart about this, and she very generously told me, you know, we don't have to stop using words like like woke and boy and 24-7. Um, and these are just a few of the countless examples. But what we have to do is show up for these communities or else we're hypocrites. Um, and Because at the end of the day, you know, our language and our politics are connected. Our language and our ethics are connected. um, And we need to remember that. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Love that. Yeah. I loved uh, in your book how you described women's conversations like jazz and then particularly Black women's conversations sort of like speech building, like community building and consensus. Because I've never thought of it in that way. Yeah. But that was a really cool way to think of it. Because a lot of the things that we do demonize, the likes, which I also like how you broke down, there are four different types of them. and they. Oh, lying. there are six. There are six. Six. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so cool. Those things yeah. that we demonize are sort of a way of, yes, I hear you. I, I'm like with you as we're going through this conversational journey and you're building something. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. So you're talking about how um, there's this linguist who has dedicated a lot of her career to understanding the many forms of the word like in English. And there are actually six of them and they all serve a very distinct purpose. And um, we don't, you know, we don't even notice or acknowledge that because we just blame, you know, teenage girls for all these likes and for ruining the English language, even though um, most people of all ages and all genders use all six, <laughs> um, because they all are extremely useful. But yeah, you were talking about the, um, you know, this this style of talk that uh, this one linguist in particular, Jennifer Coates, noticed um, in women's conversations um, is is likened to uh, a jam session, like a jazz jam session. Um, because in conversations among women, you'll often hear overlapping talk, you know, speakers repeating one another or rephrasing one another's words. Um, and everyone is sort of working together to construct meaning. Um, and so, you know, the sort of like one speaker at a time rule doesn't apply, even though you see that one speaker at a time structure in a lot of conversations among men because, you know, and these are these are large, generalizations, obviously, but um, it's interesting to think about how a lot of the time, you know, women 
are conditioned also. These are these are not, you know, ways of talking that we are born understanding. We're we're conditioned to understand them and to use them. But um, you know, women often, you know, perceive the the conversational floor at, on a horizontal level as a way to, you know, create meaning and build solidarity, whereas men oftentimes see it um, as a in a vertical way um, in order to express individual achievement. Um, and so that's why you see this this jam session-y style in, in the talk of women. And, um, and yeah, uh, Sonia Lanehart um, had talked to, about how uh, minimal responses are something you so often see in the speech of, um, of black women's communities and how they, they especially are, are incredibly savvy at using things like minimal responses. And those are, are words like, mm-hmm, and you're right, and yes, um, to build on one another's points and to uh, support one another and um, sort of emotionally support each other. Um, and these are things that are criticized, even though they're not inherently bad. Actually, as recently as yesterday, somebody tagged me in an Instagram post, a new Instagram post, where someone was, you know, perpetuating this information that we see all the time where they were saying like, ladies, we need to stop using filler words, like just, you know, actually, and I feel like, because these are just words that we have all learned to use to soften the confidence of our convictions. And just as we have been taught to express insecurity about our appearance, we've been taught to use these hedges or filler words. They don't even know the word hedge. Um, we've been taught to use these filler words to express insecurity of what we're saying. And we need to stop using them because that is just telling men that we really are insecure. But that's just a first impression. And it's based on nothing. It's based on no mm -hmm. studies. The the linguists who have empirically looked into hedges, um, that's a synonym for filler words, these are also known as discourse markers, have found that they are so rarely used to communicate insecurity um, and that they are much more often used to uh, to do some of those same things like build solidarity and check for the face needs of everyone in a conversation. Um, and linguists have found that often speech lacking in likes, you knows, and actuallys comes across as too careful and robotic and unfriendly. And these, these you know, likes and you knows and actuallys, these hedges are only used more by women than men because women more often than not dive into sensitive territory during their discussions. So men aren't having as sensitive of conversations. And so these speech characteristics aren't as useful to them. Um, but when women are talking about everything from families to relationships to therapy to, you know, politics um, to social justice, you know, you, you need some of these hedges in order to account for the face needs of everyone in a discussion and to sort of soften, really sensitive, oftentimes harsh and hard to hear sentiments. So yeah, ugh. I'm so right when I start to think like, oh, everybody already knows this word slut stuff. I like get tagged in a post like that. And I'm like, oh, no, they do not. <laughs> we have a little bit more for you listeners. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Oh my gosh, I have so many things I want to ask you, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about cursing for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Because um, this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot. I had a friend who, uh, she's actually my other podcast host over on Saver, Lauren. She curses a lot. <laughs> and she pointed out to me uh, like a month ago, if you think about it, you know, we say motherfucker. What if we said father fucker? Right. We say son of a bitch. Like it's always an insult towards women That's in right. the end. Right. Um, and so you mentioned the history of the C word and uh, a bitch and slut and reclaiming these things. Is there like a particular uh, one that you would like to dive into the history of and just women in cursing in general? Because we do have a real anxiety about that as you sort of alluded to. Yeah. Yeah, so there was this study. So basically, I guess to give a little bit of context, because we are talking about so many topics, the this book, Word Slut, <laughs> I'm sure some readers who are, or listeners who are unfamiliar are like, what is this book that talks about so many things? <laughs> basically, like every chapter tackles a different subject having to do with language and gender from insults to grammatical gender to the conversations among women when men aren't around and myths about gossip and things like that to cursing to genitalia naming slang throughout history. It like runs the gamut. It's 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 a big old beast. Um, it's a 101. It's a, it's a big giant absolutely. 101 introduction. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I, in the early days of like putting together um, the outline for this book, I kind of based it on my first sex, gender, and language college syllabus because mm -hmm. I figured like, if I fell in love with this material in this class, then that, that'd probably work on other people too. Obviously, it has 
gotten pretty far from my college syllabus. Um, there, there is no chapter in my sex, gender, and language class called F*** It, an ode to cursing while female, which is the chapter that, <laughs> that you're referencing. Um, but I'm a potty mouth too, and so I had to include it. But yeah, I was really interested in talking about cursing because I do curse so very much. And I'm also like so resentful of the stereotypes that people who curse just can't think of anything better to say. And I was like, I really, and also, you know, I I was so mystified by why I as a female was perceived as being, you know, even more crass or almost more intriguing in a way for cursing um, than men. And so I found this study that was uh, looking into young men's and women's self-reported reasons for cursing. And it was it was pretty interesting because um, I related to a lot of the answers that the women in this study gave. Um, you know, a lot of them talked about how their reasons for cursing... Well, first of all, I want to mention that linguists who studied cursing have found that cursing is not inherently aggressive or violent, even though it is perceived that way, which is also why it's perceived as an inherently more masculine thing. But in very few instances of everyday cursing are people using it to convey aggression or violence. You know, there are, in fact, forms of polite cursing, as in the sentence, oh my God, this banana bread you just baked is the shit or I f***ing love your jacket. You know, these are actively polite forms of cursing. They might be crass, they might be bleeped on iHeartRadio, but, you know, <laughs> they are not inherently um, violent. Um, so anyway, the, some of these self-reported reasons for cursing by women interested me because they were having to do with um, personality and emphasis and crafting a certain identity. You know, these were some of the reasons why women cursed, where men self-reported that they cursed just because it was expected. And I thought that was interesting because people had this sort of um, awareness that there are these gender disparities in our expectations of how men and women should use language with regard to cursing. And I was thinking in my head, you know, like, I do that too. I curse for emphasis, for personality, for chutzpah, for shock value, um, never because it's expected. Sometimes I'll actively do it just to like shake things up in a business meeting. You know what I mean? Just like, <laughs> let's see what, if I throw a, if I throw an F word out here, what are, what are these stuffy people in suits going to do? Um, and that, and that's sort of an act of you know, rebellion against expectations and, and an act of crafting a certain identity. And I think that's what a lot of women do with cursing. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of curse words too, um, like to your point, are reflecting a, a, a masculine point of view. And we talk about, and some of them are, are profoundly homophobic as well. Um, and so, you know, I I love cursing and I love the phonosymbolism of cursing, the sort of, you know, hard plosive consonants, the cuz and the puzz and the buzz and the tuz. I just like love the power in those sounds. Um, those are also some of the first sounds that babies utter in their babbling phase. So they're sort of some of our favorite sounds from birth. <laughs> and so, um, you know, something that that I sometimes like to experiment with and invite other people to experiment with is um, like creating our own curse words. Like in the, in the book at a point, I suggest, and do I by any means envision 
our culture doing away with our current vocabulary of curse words and replacing them with, you know, more feminist ones? No, but it is fun to think about it. And it is fun to kind of reframe our perception of language um, as, you know, as one of like, oh, we can get creative with this stuff. So um, one of the ones that I that I suggest is holy clit, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is kind of fun. Um, you know, obviously... The other thing too that's really interesting is that our curse words really reflect um, the the standards and fears of our culture. So in um, Canadian French, for example, so many of their curse words have to do with religion and Catholicism, like tabernacle, like which means tabernacle, or I don't even know how to say that. I'm Jewish, so um, but but um, in in English so many of our curse words have to do with sex, right? And that really, you know, it's it's the puritanism of it all and the, and the scandal of sex um, is what that really reflects. But we also have a whole category of cursing that's, you know, scatology, um, like ass, which I know because you told me will be bleeped. I think that's so funny. Why is ass not bleeped, but ass? I guess because ass is sort of, subtly implying just the cheeks and then ass is a little more internal. <laughs> you could probably get away with, you know, it's a donkey thing or whatever. Right, like uh, jackass. Because uh, my favorite, like two of my favorites would be ass hat because I don't think it's used, in, used oh, enough. Yeah, I just find hat. that as a funny vision to me. Yeah. Like that's vision, like if it was a literal thing, I was like, ha ha, you have an ass for a hat. Or, you know, something <laughs> like dick. Like that's one of my other favorite ones because, and what's so funny is not many I thought it's not as known as well. They're like, what do you mean, dick? And I was like, what? You know, he's a dick, or they're a dick. You know, stuff like that. Right. And it's kind of like people are kind of confused if I'm not saying you know any other curse words, but also because of the sounds, it's a really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. Like so. So many of our and dick is like sort of the one outlier that paints. Yeah. Um. You know. Phallicism, and is that even a word? Phallicism in a negative light, um, whereas right. we have so many that portray, right. you know, vulvas in uh, in a yeah. negative light. Um, but yeah, I mean, not to mention like douchebag, like all these terms. Oh my god, th- this is a story that I don't think I've ever told, like in an event or a podcast or anything before. But I remember, like, it's so funny when you're experimenting with cursing for the first time when you're a kid, because <laughs> you're like yes. so intrigued by this language that you know is taboo. You just like have a mm-hmm. feeling is taboo, but you but you don't know what these individual words mean. And the only right. way to learn what they mean is to like use them. But right. sometimes you use them in a context that's like so it's just like such a misstep. Like I remember the first time I ever used the word douche, I called my mom a douche. I was like seven. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know where I heard it. I must have heard it at school. Uh, and I called my mom a douche and she was just like, what? Like, where did you hear that? My mom is like a very composed scientist, by the way. Like my mom, I didn't really curse in front of my parents in the way that I genuinely do in my everyday life until I was like in my 20s because I just didn't think they could handle it because they're not really that vulgar. They're these very like mild-mannered scientists. But um, yeah, I like called my mom a douche and she was like, Amanda, do you know what that is? And then, of course, she very clinically described this like yeast infection causing um, like product that was invented because our culture thinks that vaginas are dirty um, when really they're self cleaning, folks. Um, but, anyways, um, yeah, that's just a funny story about how like 
We just, the, the way that we come to use curse words or come to learn curse words is such an awkward process. So like, why not make that awkward process for the next generation just a little more feminist, you know? Have your seven-year-old come to you and be like, holy clit, Peppa Pig is on again. <laughs> or whatever the kids are watching. <laughs> that is a sentence I thought, I don't think I'd have ever thought I would hear. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pretty thank happy you. about it, to be honest. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. (laughs) Um, So right now, as we record this, probably by the time it comes out, it's no longer true. But right now it is Pride Month. um, And we are seeing this massive social push for change and protesting. And and in your book, you you write um, about how in the right hands uh, language can change the world and that you say it may sound melodramatic, but it isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, so can you, I guess, to close this out, because this, we have talked, we've talked a little bit about those things, about how the the black community and the, the gay community has given us so much and they've been like these innovators in language and you have a chapter on the gay voice and why lesbians don't really have the gay voice. and right. I feel like there there's so many things we do take for granted right. when it comes to and language. Just to tag on, because this is a complete sub- different subject, but I know you talk a lot about gender specifically and yeah. sex. And obviously, that's a really big topic right now with some of the um, things with our novelists who people want to love. I am now going to call her she who shall not be named. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But just that conversation, I know you had a whole chapter on that, mm-hmm. and I found it really fascinating because you kind of just... Instead of like being antagonistic, you took down the actual history of it. So if you can align both of those things, as yeah, I know that's two different. No, things, no, but. that no. I think like I think the through line really is that you know there's there was some French philosopher who said that language is the medium for humans, just as water is to fish. Like we create the world with language. We don't just reflect it. We don't just describe it. We actively create the world through the repetition of language through everything we say. And that's a a theory called linguistic performativity. And it was in part pioneered by the feminist icon Judith Butler, who talked about gender performativity. And that's a whole that that's kind of that's like gender studies class now. But um <laughs> but it is it is so true that we cultivate our beliefs through language. There is no other way to do it. We don't have beliefs without language. Well, we do. And that's another theory called uh, linguistic determinism versus linguistic relativism. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, and this actually relates to, you know, some of what I'm, I'm writing about in the cult book um, as well is that, you know, ideology could not be instilled or proliferated without language. And so the way that we describe things, whether it's gender or sexuality or race, it not only, you know, reflects what we believe, but it creates a world. It creates a system of beliefs, a culture of beliefs. And so becoming aware of the histories of some of these words and the history of how language develops, um, can really better, it can help us make better informed decisions about how we want to use language. It can help us create the world that we want to live in or continue to perpetuate a world that 
that isn't equal and that is problematic and that is oppressive. And this isn't stuff that we learn in elementary or middle or high school. We don't learn about these things. We just come to use language so naturally. And so my whole mission with with sociolinguistics, and it's one that I so hope continues far past what I'm able to write, is that I don't want to police anyone's language or force anyone to say anything. I don't want my language to be policed. I don't want people to tell me that I can't name my book Word Slut. I don't want people to tell me that singular they is ungrammatical. I don't want people to tell me any of that stuff. But really what this information and why I'm so grateful to these linguists, why this stuff is important is because it's allowing us to become more educated so then we can make our own decisions about how we want to use language to create the world that we want to see. Um, and, you know, there was this amazing linguist that I talked to a ton for this book named Lal Zimmon, who um, studies language and gender, particularly as it relates to transgender communities. He's, he's at the University of California, Santa Barbara. and. He and I, he and I were really share a lot of, of points because you can get really pessimistic about a lot of things, um, particularly when you see how like whenever there's a push for inclusive language, a lot of the times the opposition is like more powerful than the initial than the initial movement. And you have all this backlash and all this hate speech because people don't want to see language change because people don't want to see culture change. Um, but he's incredibly optimistic. And like the the last line in in my book um it, it says like he says, I have to be optimistic to make it through. You have to believe it's possible. You know, you have, and this, and this has to do with activism. It has to do with language. It has to do with everything. Like you have to believe that if you put forth the effort to educate yourself and make sure that your actions and your language is reflecting that education, you have to believe that that will create a better world. And, and language is a, is an incredibly peaceable way to do that. And you don't even have to leave your house. Um, so, you know, language change and ideological societal cultural change go hand in hand. You cannot force someone to use language a certain way and expect their ideology to follow. So you have to get people on board with the ideology first. But if you are already on board with equality, with gender equality, with, you know, with certain sexual and gender identities that maybe weren't approved of 50 years ago, with racial equality, then goodness knows our, our speech and our language should reflect that. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is, is give people the tools to make that happen, just some of the tools. Um, so that those are kind of generalized statements, but they can apply to, to so many communities, I think. Yes. Um, and, and thank you so much for, for joining us and having this conversation, for writing the book. Um, there's so many things... Listeners, if you want to know like the, about the history of gender, which is much shorter than I thought it was. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, the history of I, the word gender. Yeah, it is, yeah. is short. Yeah. It, I was like, what? <laughs> mm, <yep. laughs> the history of curse words, um, our thoughts about sex, which we didn't get to get into, but how words shape our, our thoughts about sex and our bodies. That's all in this 
running of the gamut book. Uh, even a <laughs> yeah. defense of y'all, which I really appreciate. Yes, since yes. we're in the South, as um, Georgians, uh, we definitely really appreciated that. Oh hell yes. yeah! Yes. I will always go to bat for y'all. <laughs> I have felt so judged for so long, but I feel it's being more accepted now. So, yeah. Um, can Finally. you tell? the listeners, where they can find you, where they can get your book, all those things. Yeah. Yeah. You can find me on Instagram at Amanda underscore Montel. And there I post um, some little short mini lessons about language and gender um, quite a lot. So if you want even more of this stuff in micro doses, you can find it there. Um, and then you can find Word Slut wherever books are sold. It's also available in ebook and audiobook. And I recorded it myself. <laughs> Nice. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Definitely go check Amanda out, listeners. Go read Word Slut. It was a very fun, wonderful read. Um, and if you would like to find us, you can. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You or on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.